You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our text this morning as we'll continue to work through the letter of Paul to Titus. We'll come to the instructions that Titus is to give to slaves today, and it's in that connection that we'll first read Ephesians 6, the verses 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever he does, whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he is both their master and your, uh, that both your master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. And we'll turn a little further in the New Testament to Paul's letter to Philemon. We'll read the verses 8 through 22 in that letter. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, But now he has become useful, both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Our text this morning is Titus chapter 2, the verses 9 and 10. In this chapter, he's been teaching Titus what Titus, in turn, is to teach to the various groups in that church that he's, you might say, planting or establishing on the island of Crete. He's taught about the older men and the older women who are to teach the younger women and the younger men as well. And now we come to the slaves. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way 
they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the word revolution doesn't show up anywhere in our text this morning as we see the Apostle Paul or hear him, read him, teaching Titus about what to teach to slaves on Crete. But the word revolution kept coming to my mind in, in thinking about and studying this passage. One reason for that is that slaves and revolution have a long history together. Slaves and revolution have a long history together. One of the most famous slave revolutions was the Haitian Revolution at the turn of the 19th century, when the slaves revolted against their French masters, drove them out of what would later become their country of Haiti, established a state there, autonomous rule by themselves. The result of that revolution was, in fact, the expulsion of the French from Haiti and the establishment of an independent autonomous state. Now, some would say, therefore, that because the slaves accomplished what they set out to do, that it was a successful revolution. The events that followed the revolution, however, effectively saw most of the Haitians become slaves again. This time, not to the French, but to other Haitians, except that now, following the revolution, a crippling reparations that they had to make to France, dictatorial rule, and a wiped-out economy made life even worse after the revolution than it was before. That was one slave revolution, a well-known one. Long before that slave revolution in the Roman Empire, there were a number of attempted slave revolutions. Three slave rebellions that in fact shook up the Roman world. Shook up the, the consciousness, the, the, the thinking, the security of the Roman Empire. The first one was called the First Servile, Servant Slave, First Servile War in 135 to 132 BC. A former slave who claimed to be a prophet stirred up a lot of other slaves. They re re rebelled on the island of Sicily. Their rebellion was squashed, and that was it for their revolution. Thirty years later, 104 to 100 B.C., a large group of slaves rebelled, again on the island of Sicily, close to Italy, close to Rome. They had 2,000 cavalry. They had 20,000 infantry, other slaves that they, they brought into their revolution. And only after great effort was this rebellion quelled. It seemed that slave revolution, however, was in the air in the Roman Empire. And in 73 BC, the famous slave rebellion, the Third Servile War, began. This is the one that you may know of from the 1960s film uh, Spartacus. This was the one led by Spartacus. Started by 78 gladiators in Italy, close to Rome, spread throughout Italy as they, they won wars. They brought other slaves and gladiators and, and other people who were oppressed under the empire in among them to the point of threatening the life of the empire itself and threatening the great city of Rome. But like the others, this revolution, this rebellion also was quenched, was quelled. 
The result of that third servile revolution, in fact, was a brutal and effective discouragement. After those slaves were defeated in a great battle, they were lined up for miles on the Appian Way, the main roads going into Rome. Along the Appian Way, they hung up 6,000 of these rebellious slaves on crosses. They crucified them. 6,000 lining the road on the Appian Way as you made your way into Rome. There were no more slave revolutions after that. The point was made effectively by that shameful, painful, horrible type of death to which they treated those rebels. This was never to happen again. How profoundly ironic, then, that a hundred years later, it would be that type of death, shameful, painful crucifixion. Not in Rome this time, but outside Jerusalem. The crucifixion of a man named Jesus. Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, as he would come to be known, that would set off a whole new revolution but a completely different kind of revolution. A revolution that would free slaves from their bondage, that would spread throughout the Roman Empire, that at one point would take over the Roman Empire. Yes, spread to the four corners of the world as the powers of sin and death would succumb to this revolution's power and purpose. Yes, the revolution that we're speaking about this morning the revolution that affects the slaves about which Paul gives instruction to Titus is the revolution brought by the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And so in our text this morning, we see Paul teaching Titus to teach the slaves about this revolution. He teaches them about the results of the revolution. What does this revolution mean for them? How are they to respond to this profound change that has happened? And how is this revolution going to spread throughout the world? So first of all, the results of the revolution. You may be wondering about the appropriateness of using this term revolution to speak about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ because revolutions, often you think of the Haitian revolution, you think of those, those servile wars, you think of the French revolution, You think of really any revolution and you think of bloodshed, you think of anarchy, you think of wickedness and godlessness. Well, that's not the kind of revolution that comes from the gospel. In fact, this revolution, a revolution is a word that can simply mean a sudden, complete or marked change in something. This revolution has come as a result of the bloodshed, of the lawlessness, of the wickedness in the world. That's why this revolution has started to bring an end to all of these things. The result is not bloodshed and anarchy and wickedness, but as Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So the work of Jesus Christ brings a change. It brings a revolution. It changes everything. It changes everything for the world, and it changes everything for those who will hear of this good news and who will believe it by faith, who will understand that their life is wrapped up, their hope is wrapped up in what Jesus Christ accomplished outside Jerusalem on the cross. And as Paul instructs Titus, he's instructing him on how that great work changes their lives, changes how they are to live their lives. So what is this world-changing message to the slaves in Crete? What is this life-altering message that the work of Jesus Christ brings to those who are living in slavery and bondage under earthly masters? It's this message. Be a good slave. Be a good slave. That's the earth-shattering message that the work of Jesus Christ brings to slave. Be a good slave if you are one. See, Paul's words here, in some ways, aren't revolutionary at all. They're no different than what any other person might tell slaves. Any other person who wants to achieve peace in the empire, who's not going to upset the social order, be a good slave. There's nothing revolutionary about what Paul says in a sense, but that in itself is revolutionary, as we'll go on to see. So, what does Paul tell the slaves? He says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. Slaves are to be submissive. Submissive. You know what that word means? It's a word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament. It means that a slave is to voluntarily, Paul stresses that in Ephesians 6, voluntarily yield to their master's will and decision in everything. Now, that in everything, of course, that refers to all the normal things in which a slave would be called upon to answer to their master. It's not saying that if a master tells a slave to do something horribly wicked and and ungodly that they should do that. No, of course not. The rule we must obey God rather than men always applies. But in all the the things of, of slavehood, obey your masters. Now, this is quite revolutionary. We know that submission in the context of a wife to her husband relates to a voluntary obedience. That is, she's to actively submit herself. But we also recognize that that the wife has a certain freedom in this. She can actively submit herself or she can not. But in the matter of slavery, it's normally understood that the slave has no choice in the matter. They're a slave. They have to obey. This is an enforced slavery. If they had a chance, they would probably not be slaves. And so the one under slavery needs to do what is necessary, necessarily required by their master. But Paul turns this on its head. And he says, don't do it because you have to, but do it because you want to. Do it not as if serving your master, but as if serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't. It's not about your relationship between you and your master and the fact that he has control over you. It's about your relationship between you and Jesus Christ. The fact that he changes your heart so that you can want to obey your master. This is revolutionary. 
So that obedience is to be an active, voluntary obedience. And then the second thing that he addresses to them, he addresses this active, proactive character as well. They're to actively try to please their masters. You're the slave. He's your master. There's nothing in that contract that says that you must try to please him. You must do what he says. You must avoid punishment. But to try and please your master, that's going above and beyond the normal bounds of slavery. In fact, the natural response of a slave would be not to do that. Although a master tells me to avoid punishment, but I don't want to please him. I'm his slave. Paul says, no, try to please your master. Go above and beyond the call of duty. Third thing he says is don't talk back to your master. In the the famous Greco-Roman comedies of that time, the plays, it was common that the slave would actually be the smartest guy on the stage. He would be the joker, the one who always had a quick and witty comeback for his too slow, dense master. He was obviously smarter, smarter than the befuddled, fumbling owner. That was the sort of the stereotype that was promoted in the plays of that time. So it would have been natural for slaves to try to follow that stereotype. And Paul says, don't. Don't do it. Don't talk back to your masters. Also, fourthly, don't steal. This was a pernicious problem. Slaves were given a tremendous amount of responsibility. Sometimes their owners lived far away from the place that they worked, so they were in charge of, say, a whole operation. They were like a general manager at a company, CEO, fully in charge of, of everything or of the household. The owner could, could delegate all the responsibilities of the household over to a slave. And so a slave was in a position to enrich themselves at the expense of their master. And who could blame them, right? They had no rights. They had no uh, possessions. Who could blame a slave for skimming a little off the top on the, at the expense of his master? Isn't he working to make his master rich or to make his life better, more comfortable? Shouldn't he be able to benefit from this as well? Wouldn't we naturally be on the side of the opportunistic slave? And we cheer for Robin Hood as he's stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. Paul says, don't steal. Don't do that. Slaves, don't skim off the top as you serve your masters. Fifthly, show that you can be fully trusted. Rather than steal, Paul urges Christian slaves to show their bosses that they can be fully trusted in all things. Basically, this just entails being the kind of slave that every master would want. An obedient, respectful, reliable person. Be worthy of his trust. So as you can see, in every way, in every instruction here, Paul is basically saying to the slaves, be a good slave. The revolution that Jesus Christ sets off in the hearts of his people is one where wickedness and evil desires are expelled and self-control, upright, and godliness move in. And for a slave, that means that you are transformed into a good slave. But Paul is saying more than simply be a good slave. Because this grace that has appeared in Jesus Christ has not given sort of a new list of rules for the slaves. It's not a rule list for anyone. 
Not the old men, not the young men, not the old women, not the young women. Rather, what the grace of God in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection and ascension, it gives is what it does is give a new life. It doesn't bring a new list of rules out with the old rules in with the new rules. No, it brings a new life to the heart of the person who has been regenerated, who believes that work, who entrusts themselves to it. Appropriating what Christ has done by faith speaks teaches life to your hearts. That's the teaching that Paul is speaking about here. It teaches you. teaches your heart. It speaks life. It speaks forgiveness and humility and restoration. It speaks dignity and kindness. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is what teaches the hearts of slaves. It's that gospel of Jesus Christ which reveals forgiveness, which reveals humility and restoration and dignity and kindness. Slavery in those days was not always bad, but it could be very bad. In that owner-slave relationship, there wasn't a whole lot stopping a master of a slave to do whatever he wanted. Slaves generally held the lives of their servants, or masters held the lives of their slaves in their hands. Their slave was caught stealing, they could kill them without trial. So it wasn't always bad, but it could be very bad. And it's that badness when masters had no regard for the lives and well-being of their slaves, that those slaves would become motivated toward revolution, toward anarchy and wickedness and bloodshed and rebellion. Slavery, that, that institution itself, with the master holding the life of the slave in his hands, can so easily speak and teach dishonor and shame and anger and retaliation, subjection, discrimination and racism to the hearts of the slaves. That's what that institution can speak to the heart of a slave. No doubt it was from the heart of rage and hatred that slaves were given to revolt. After those slaves in Haiti had driven out the white French, this is what one of the general secretary said about their the Declaration of Independence that they wanted to sign. He said, for our Declaration of Independence, we should have the skin of a white man for parchment, his skull for an inkwell, his blood for ink, and a bayonet for pen. The slaves of Haiti had been treated brutally by their masters. And so brutality was their response. As they had been given, so they gave. From hatred to hatred. They'd experienced hatred, so they returned with hatred in their revolution. But what you rec- realize is that their revolution was no revolution at all. It was just the same path. From hatred to hatred. Nothing had changed except the balance of power. But in the heart, it was the same old story of hatred and revenge. The gospel, however, brings a real revolution, a revolution of the heart, so that Paul can unapologetically direct slaves not to rebel and hate, not to get back, not to promote discord, but rather to submit and to love. The basic point is this, the gospel 
The gospel of Jesus Christ has to revolutionize your hearts. We need to appropriate what Jesus Christ has done by faith so that it speaks life to our hearts. And it will. That's the power of the gospel. The power of what Jesus Christ has done. The grace that God has revealed in sending him to this world to die for our sins. To rise to new life and ascend to the heaven. To be at God's right hand on our behalf. It teaches us grace. Forgiveness. Humility. Restoration. Dignity. And kindness. And it teaches us to show those things. Because those are the very things that we ourselves have received. And so, brothers and sisters, in the context that we live in today, there's not really a direct link. There is slavery in parts of the world. We don't experience slavery today. You might think of the workforce, but it's not exactly like slavery. We have a lot of rights. Workers have a lot of rights in our time and place. However, if we consider the larger picture of this work of Jesus Christ and the effect that it has, then you can see the application of what Paul is saying to the slaves here. Because you might be in a bad job. You might have a difficult boss. Your circumstances might pressure you into, into a restrictive environment, something that you would account as slavish existence. And our culture today, our modern rights-based culture, is going to teach you how you should respond to this. Our culture today teaches you words of self-actualization and rights and retaliation and litigation and hatred and anger and jealousy. Teaches all these things to our hearts as we work in in jobs or in places that we think we're not being properly appreciated. If you're not feeling fully appreciated by your boss, you have reason. That's what we hear. That's the message. You have reason for anger or resentment. Get back at them. Don't let them get away with that. Cut down the opposition in order to get the, the attention of your boss. That's what our culture speaks to our hearts today. And it goes beyond work as well. It goes into relationships, husband and wife relationships. Does your husband not appreciate how, how diligent and wonderful and beautiful you feel that you are? Then you should assert your rights in anger or retreat into bitterness or find someone who will tell you the things that your husband has long since forgotten or been too distracted or busy to tell you. That's what our world teaches our hearts. But what does Paul say? He says the grace of God has appeared and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And it teaches us to live a godly life. Even slaves are taught to live a godly life. Your work might be tough, but work as though serving the Lord. You can certainly serve the Lord anywhere you are. Your marriage may feel like bond slavery, but submit and serve in reverence to the Lord. Your circumstances may whisper one kind of revolution into your heart, but the gospel of Jesus Christ brings a new and a, and a different and a more powerful revolution. And so we tell slaves with, with all authority and sincerity as an apostle of Jesus Christ, be a good slave. More than that, 
What he tells them is, be who you are in Jesus Christ. Be who you are in Jesus Christ. Free, dignified, worthy, loving. The gospel tells you that you are redeemed, set free from the bondage of sin, more sinful than you could admit, but more loved than you can imagine, radiantly beautiful and worthy, clothed in Jesus' robes of righteousness. Yes, a slave at the bottom of the totem pole, lifted up to the right hand of God in Jesus Christ. That's who you are. Yes, you're a slave here, but you're so much more than a slave. You are a son or a daughter. You are a child of the King, of God in heaven. That's who you are. So live that out in whatever circumstances you, you find yourself in. So that was the result of the revolution. The spread of the revolution. So what we'll turn to now. Slavery in that ancient Roman world was decidedly different, for example, than the slavery that existed in Haiti or the one that we're probably more familiar with, slavery in the United States. Especially after the painful and frightening slave revolts of those three servile wars, owners realized that they had to treat their slaves a little better, lest they rebel again. But still, it would seem that there's a tendency, wouldn't it, within slavery... For slaves to feel ashamed and beat down simply by their status. People became slaves through all sorts of means. One of them was through conquest. So if the Roman Empire took over your part of the empire, they would take all the able-bodied people, make them slaves for themselves back in Rome or wherever they happened to live. And so you could one day be a proud, rich landowner, you could have slaves of your own. And then the next minute you are, you're beaten by the Romans and you become a household slave of some other person. And you have to, or you have to go to work as a road crew or a mine worker. Things could change for you in an instant and that would be a shaming, embarrassing, beating down experience. What's revolutionary, however, and Paul's address to the slaves here is that he doesn't address the slaves as inferior in any way, but he addresses them as equals. Notice how he just marches through the list here. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, slaves. All of them make up the body of Jesus Christ. All of them equal in Christ. They're addressed right alongside their masters in Ephesians 6, who are also under the authority of God's word. As Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 28, in Christ there is neither slave nor free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. As he writes to Philemon, Paul says, greet Onesimus as a brother, as a friend and a brother. He who is your slave is also your brother in the Lord. That's the effect of the work of Jesus Christ. We are all one in Jesus Christ, equal. In his sight. And so in Christ, the slave doesn't lack dignity and worth. They're redeemed by faith and heirs of the promise as sons of God. But while the gospel removes the shame from those slaves, that's not the end goal of the gospel. There's more that Christ is doing. Yes, he's redeeming them. He's lifting them up, saving them. But there's more as well. 
The gospel brings honor to the one who understands what Christ has done for them. But at the same time, those who have been captured by the gospel live not for their own honor and not even for the honor of their master, but they live for the honor of Jesus Christ. That becomes the motivation and the goal and the purpose of all those redeemed by Jesus Christ. They live not for their own glory, but for the glory of Jesus Christ and God the Father in heaven and the Spirit who comes from them. And so the result of the gospel for a slave is not to turn inward and, and tell themselves now how great they are, although they can experience that, that dignity and worth in Jesus Christ, but rather in turning all things in their life toward the worship of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul says that slaves are to be good slaves so that in everything they can make the teaching of God their Savior attractive. That's their purpose. That teaching is the sound doctrine that Paul had spoken of in verse 1 in chapter 2. God has saved us from slavery to passions and pleasures, as he'll go on to say, sending his son to die on the cross for us. This is more... This is the more troublesome aspect of slavery. This is the real slavery that we need to be worried about. The slavery that affects us all, all outside of Christ. The slavery that Christ has come to redeem us from. Slavery to sin. And slavery to selfish desires. The teaching of God our Savior is the story of how God became our Savior in the life of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is your savior, you learn how to say no to wickedness and to become a better person, which for the slave means being a better slave. And when a slave through the power of the gospel becomes a better slave, then they bring honor to Jesus Christ and they make the message of the gospel attractive. Through that change that begins in their heart, works out in their lives, they make the teaching of God their Savior attractive. They become powerful demonstrations of the grace that God has shown to the world. It doesn't only happen to slaves. It's not only slaves that experience this, but doctors experience this as well. And lawyers, and nurses, and framers, electricians, janitors, teachers, students, Plumbers, care aides, accountants, coaches, referees, volunteers, mothers, fathers, children, friends. When the grace of God teaches you to say no to ungodliness through what Christ has done for you, you become a living demonstration of the power of grace as you shine forth the beauty of the gospel. But here's the crazy part. We read in verse 11 that the grace of God appeared to all men. And so slaves are to, are to become this living demonstration of the gospel for all men in the world, you might say in a general sense. But who are they most specifically working for? As they demonstrate the power of God's grace, who is the one who's going to be affected the most by this? It's going to be their master. It's going to be the person who owns them. It's going to be the person who may be treating them like garbage. Or at least may not be treating them well, like a brother. 
That's the person who they're most focused on in the demonstration of God's grace in their life. The person that the slave is most focused on is their earthly master. The biggest change that this grace is going to have is for them. So when the gospel grabs hold of your heart, your concern for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ means that you make the gospel attractive for that person who may be the last person in the world who you want to make it attractive for. But that's the change that Christ brings in your heart. You want them to experience what you have experienced yourself. You obey, you work hard, you show yourself trustworthy so that they will experience something of the power of the gospel, if only in having a better slave but hopefully in more. Wondering what this change is all about. Asking what's made this change in your life so that you can give a reason for the hope and the change that has happened within you. So changed by the gospel, the slave labors, not only for the earthly good of their masters, but for the eternal good as well. This is how the revolution brothers and sisters, spreads and how it is sustained. Slave revolutions are notoriously disastrous for those who partake in them. Only the work of Jesus Christ can bring a revolution that truly promises and delivers hope. From the life and speech of one slave at a time to one master of a time, that is how this revolution of the gospel spreads. And that's how it did spread. It spread from one corner of the Roman Empire to the major cities of the Roman Empire to individual slaves and masters and younger and older men and women until it spread throughout the Roman Empire and it continues to spread throughout the world today. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters, that has taken hold of our hearts so that we desire to bring honor to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in heaven saying no to ungodliness and wickedness and living lives of faith and hope as powerful demonstrations of the grace of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we call upon you to thank you for the grace that you have shown in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that powerful grace which revolutionizes our hearts, changes us dramatically from the inside out. And we pray that you would show your grace to us on this day as well through the proclamation of that gospel and on every day teaching us to live godly lives. We pray for also for our young brother Sterling. We pray that you'd be with him and his family now. Would you... Watch over them. Keep them safe. Would you bless us in the rest of this worship service as well as we bring honor and glory, praise and thanks to your throne in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.